Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Jamie Weinstein. My guest today is uh, something of a friend. I, I, I certainly uh, see him around town. I've had lunches with him. I, I wouldn't say we're super close, but someone I've been wanting on the podcast, this one or my previous one for many years, and that is Shadi Hamid. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is a writer, columnist for the Washington Post, and author of several books, including most recently, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and The Rise and Fall of an Idea. I wanted Shadi on uh, specifically or particularly because I think we disagree on a lot uh, what's going on in the Middle East. We do agree, I think you'll find, on on more than uh, maybe some will uh, expect. Uh, but I wanted to bring him on and have a discussion of what's going on in the Middle East with someone who uh, disagrees with me on uh, at least a, a decent amount. And I think you're going to find this conversation useful and, and uh, productive. Uh, I hope you do, at least. One thing I will note is that sometimes people go on speaking for a while and you can't rebut every point if you disagree with it. you got to pick and choose the issues that you go back and forth with. And that's true of me, and I'm sure it's true of, of Shadi uh, hearing some of my responses. So uh, if you hear me uh, not respond to something that you think I should have responded to, understand if you're going to have conversations you can't respond to every point someone makes, only the most crucial, at least what I think are the most crucial. So without further ado, I give you my friend, Shadi Hamid. Shadi Hamid, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Shadi, I, I want to begin for maybe some of those who don't know your professional background. If you could just kind of recount uh, your history, uh, studying, you know, what 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 you focus on and, and, and that sort. Yeah, sure. Well, it is a bit of a long story. Briefly, I, I started to get into Middle East politics after 9-11. I was a freshman in college when the attacks happened. It was a formative moment. And I had these set of questions after the attacks that, you know, how, why did 9-11 happen? What are the implications for the U.S.? Um, why is there so much anti-Americanism in the Middle East? Why do we support autocratic regimes in the Middle East? So I started to study that. Um, I did my PhD on Islamist movements in the region. I lived in Egypt and Jordan uh, doing field work there. After that, um, my first job after my PhD was at Brookings, and that's where I was for 14 years, for the four, first four years in Qatar at the Brookings Doha Center. And then I came back to DC in 2014. So in Brookings, as you know, some will know, that is a think tank and you know, try to influence US policy and, and that sort of thing. But I have started a new job. Um, I am, as of just about two months ago, I am at the Washington Post, which is a big shift, and it's been exciting. Um, and I am a columnist and member of the editorial board um, at the Post. 
And I've also written a couple books about different aspects of Islam and politics and U.S. foreign policy, my most recent book being um, The Problem of Democracy, where I talk about what do we do when democracy produces bad outcomes, which I think is really a fundamental question. And it started off being a fundamental question in the Middle East because you would have Islamist parties coming to power through free elections. And then we as Americans would be like, oh, well, we like democracy, but if democracy leads to these you know, very religiously conservative parties coming to power and also parties that are anti-American, anti-Israel, then do we really like democracy? So that that has been really um, an animating question in a lot of my research and thinking. And of course, it's relevant to the U.S. as well, probably in 2024. Well, I, I uh, you mentioned the Washington Post. I, I hope to conduct this interview uh, in the in the way that the title of your first piece for the Washington Post in October uh, was titled "In the Israeli-Palestinian Debate, You Might Be Wrong, So Be Humble." So uh, I, I thought that was a good title, uh, uh, and I want to get into a lot of the Washington Post pieces that that you've written. But let's let's begin with the the uh, the aftermath of October seventh, um, and I want to place you in the position of Israeli Prime Minister. How would Israeli Prime Minister Shadi Hamid responded uh, to the attacks of October seventh? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, um, while I think that people, you know, generally view me as being on the quote unquote pro-Palestinian side of this debate. I mean, I don't necessarily love these labels, but I, you know, it's very clear that I've been critical of Israel's response to the October 7th attacks. Um, at the same time, for some people on my own side, maybe not critical enough. So I do believe that Israel has a right to defend itself. I don't think that we can call for a ceasefire without mentioning what happens to Hamas. You can't reasonably expect Israeli officials to be like, oh, well, we're going to just um, you know, leave Hamas in power or not degrade their military assets and infrastructure. Hamas committed horrific attacks on that day. And if I was an Israeli or an Israeli uh, prime minister, I would I would need to do something and I would want to do something militarily. So this idea that sh there should have never been any kind of military operation, which is maybe the more kind of far left position that you sometimes hear, is not realistic. And I just also at a basic level, it's just... It expects something out of Israel that I think is just totally unreasonable. That said, I mean, I, I think the way that Israel has conducted its airstrikes in Gaza and then its ground offensive have been um, just really hard to process. The, 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 the civilian toll has been absolutely staggering. And I still, you know, have trouble getting my head around it. We're talking about um, over 15,000 killed, which in a population of 2.2 million is a lot of people. If you compare that, if, if you do that as a share of the U.S. population, it comes out to more than 1.5 million people. Of course, some of those 15,000 are, are combatants and Hamas members, but let's say that even a fourth of them or a third of them are combatants, the rest aren't. That's, that's a very high civilian toll. So even if one-fourth or one-third are combatants, we're still talking about a tremendous loss of civilian life, the rest being civilians, women, children, and people who 
should not be implicated in what Hamas did. There, you know, I am against collective punishment in that sense. So, and then if we look at the northern part of Gaza, which is where most Palestinians, where most Gazans live, 50% of homes and buildings in the northern part of Gaza have been destroyed or damaged. So we're talking about entire um, towns and cities being reduced to quite literally rubble. I think that any kind of military operation of this sort should emphasize precision. It should be very careful about how it conducts this kind of warfare. And that's not just for moral reasons. There's a strong moral argument to make here. And I should say that on the moral side, I we can maybe talk about this a bit more later, but I think that there's a real American blind spot when it comes to actually seeing Palestinians as real human beings. We tend to talk about them as collateral damage, as civilian casualties. We do these death tolls and numbers. And I think, I think that can be sometimes kind of bloodless and clinical in a way that is unsettling to me. But putting aside the moral considerations, there's also the pragmatic side. If I'm the Israeli prime minister, I don't want Gaza to be reduced to rubble. I want Gazans to be able to come back because they have to live somewhere. You don't want them to be stuck in, in tent camps indefinitely in the southern part of the Strip because that's going to be a breeding ground for extremism and terrorism. Um, if you inflict this kind of harm on a civilian population, some of them are going to say, well, we want revenge against Israelis. And, you know, we can talk about lessons learned from 9-11, but we have to be very careful about looking at what causes terrorism. What are the, what makes terrorism more or less likely? I don't want to see a future situation where young Gazans, because they lost their parents or parents who lost their children decide that the only way to um, advocate, the only way to be political is to be violent. I would much rather Gazans and Palestinians going forward to believe that there is a path towards an independent Palestinian state and that it can be pursued peacefully without considering violence as an option. So on a very pragmatic level, I think what Israel is doing might very well backfire. And then there's the question of, does Israel want to be responsible for Gaza going forward? Um, I don't think that Israelis should want that. And if I was prime minister, I would very much want to see a situation where authority and power can be transferred to a Palestinian entity, ideally a revitalized Palestinian authority. Um, for all of its faults, that's really all we got. Um, and so I think that Israel through this operation is undermining a lot of these future possibilities. And that makes me very nervous. There was a lot there. Uh, and some of it I was planning to get a little bit later, but I, I, for the, the one remark you made, which I would, I, I want to make clear to the audience is that you, you have been attacked by the right and the left. Some people on the right have called you pro Hamas. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't be here if you were pro Hamas. And I think it'll be very clear with some of the, the things I quote from your Washington Post articles and, and what you said there that that is not a, a pro Hamas position. And, and it's a, uh, a certainty. I, I know uh, Shadi from uh, from DC, and he, he's a smart and reasonable guy. And that's why he is on the show. Um, the obvious, uh, you know, uh, uh, point that people would raise to to the civilian death toll, uh, and you, you rightly, I think, brought up, we don't know the number. I'm sure it's 
not zero, obviously, and, it, and it's probably in the thousands. We don't know how many thousands. Is Hamas deliberately and, and intricately uh, has built this network of uh, tunnels underground and has launched rockets from near civilian and within civilian places, schools even, residential centers. And the question is, how does a government, how does Israel, how does any government uh, respond and destroy an enemy who wants to, to destroy it um, that has embedded itself within civilian territory so intricately um, with, with, without killing lots of civilians? And, you know, I'm not a military expert. I've seen, you know, some of the people that you've cited saying that they could do better. I've seen other people say it's really very hard uh, to to fight a battle against an enemy that has uh, embedded itself and has ha been able not only control you know controls the territory so it, it has the time and and wherewithal to embed itself and so I guess my question is how do you fight back against an enemy like that that has done such a great job of building tunnels of hiding within residential areas without killing civilian population yeah. And I think in some ways, this has been the recurring question, and rightfully so. It's a challenging one. The first thing I'd say is, I really hope that when all of this is said and done, Palestinians will think very carefully about how Hamas pushed them in such a terrible position that when Hamas launched these attacks on Israel on October 7th, it did something very selfish. It knew there was, Hamas knew there was going to be a terrible civilian toll. They've admitted that publicly. And I hope that at some point, more and more Palestinians will, will give Hamas the reckoning it deserves. So, but Hamas is, I think most of us can agree, Hamas is a terrorist organization. It does terrible things. It doesn't care about civilian lives. I I tend to I tend to hold Israel to a higher standard and some people might say that's unfair but I think it is fair to hold a democracy a vibrant one for all of its flaws to a higher standard than Hamas. So people will often be like, well what about Hamas? And I just think that's the kind of whataboutism that I think is a bit morally obtuse. But then there's a the question of proportion. I'm not arguing that there could ever be an Israeli military operation in Gaza where the civilian death toll is zero or in the hundreds. There is going to be significant civilian lives lost. Um, it's a question of degree, and it's a question of proportionality and precision. But kind of when you use proportionality, yeah. how do you understand it? It sounds like you understand it as a matter of numbers. And my understanding, it's it's not a matter of numbers. It's a matter of threat. That the enemy poses to you. Yeah. Well, okay. I'll give you an example on this. So um, during the second intifada in the 2000s, um, when when George W. Bush was president, Israel targeted a senior, a top Hamas military commander named Saleh Shahada. I think I believe it was in 2003 or 2004. Um, they killed him, but then around seven civilians, including children, were killed in that strike. And what's interesting, if you I remember. Yeah, and what's interesting, if you look back at that, the Bush administration, which was pretty damn pro-Israel, came out with some very pointed public criticisms saying that what Israel did had crossed the line and that it was unacceptable to have this civilian 
this civilian toll, even if the target was legitimate. Now, you compare that to the strikes on the Jebelea refugee camp um, in this current round of conflict. But, but Shadi, yeah. before you go to the comparison, is it wor- it's worth noting that that strike was not when Hamas controlled uh, the territory. This was, the Hamas was not in control yes. of either the West Bank or Gaza. That's right. Yes. I forget. I forget if that strike was in Gaza or the West Bank, but but Hamas was not. Yeah, in, that's in correct. Charge. Yeah, and if you look, if you look at the current round of conflict that with the Jebelea refugee camp, um, and dozens of civilians were killed because Israel was trying to target a platoon commander. So not even particularly someone, as far as we know, who was that senior. And you have to ask yourself. So when you talk about proportionality, and again, this is. You know, there are experts on this. It's a very kind of particular subfield, international humanitarian law, how you conduct warfare in these difficult circumstances. But, um, you know, I would I would tend to think that if dozens or more than 50 are are killed and you only get one platoon commander, then there's reasonable objections that can be made about whether it was quote unquote worth it. And of course, when whenever you talk about this and you're doing these cost benefit analyses, it does sound very clinical and bloodless. And um, but I I would like, I would have much preferred to see Israel erring on erring much more on the side of the proportionality considerations that I mentioned in 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 the 2000s, you know, reasonable people can disagree, but I just don't think that you can say, well, we got a platoon commander. So then we can target a refugee camp and sorry, too bad, this is a price of war. Um, Because then you can really justify mass killing really on a tremendous scale because you can find Hamas members, uh, as you mentioned, you know, in a lot of places in Gaza that are densely populated with other civilians around. Are you always going to be targeting those Hamas members or commanders when you know that there are a lot of children and innocents around. So uh, so I, I just think that the U.S. in its own targeting, I think, has has tended to be more careful. If you look at the, the um, U.S.-led coalition against ISIS, when the U.S. would target um, top, Al-Qaeda, uh, top ISIS commanders or elsewhere top Al-Qaeda commanders, there is a lot of consideration as to whether they're with their own family members. So even if there are a couple children around, it, the U.S. has made, I think, considerable strides to wait for Al-Qaeda and ISIS commanders to be away from children. Again, reasonable people can disagree on where you draw some of these lines, but I think if you look at the overall civilian toll, in Gaza, it's just hard for me to really respect the argument that Israel is conducting this war humanely or morally. I just can't, in my own moral universe, when um, what you know, fifteen thousand, or even if you know, if we want to quibble on the numbers, I should say that for those who are questioning the um, the death toll numbers, my colleague at the Post, Glenn Kessler, did. Um, like a really exhaustive fact check on the numbers from the Gaza Health Ministry and that how they have been reliable in the past when the UN and other human rights organizations verify the numbers after the previous rounds of conflict. I have not seen any compelling evidence 
that the numbers coming from the Gaza Health Ministry have been significantly inflated. If anything, I think there's a strong argument that they're undercounted because when you have a lot of rubble and destruction, it is actually hard to do accurate counts. And that's why there is no longer an official tally being done because uh, Palestinians have kind of given up in Gaza of even counting those numbers. Um, and considering also the chaos at various hospitals, it's just very hard to know. But regardless of all of that, um, we're still talking about enormous numbers. Even, even if you want to cut down the 15,000 number to 10,000, and also the number of children who we know have been killed, and that has been verified. We're just talking about tremendous numbers and a scale of destruction. So also the fact that 1.7 million out of the 2.2 million population in Gaza has been displaced. Let's just, let's just try to get our heads around that number. You can't argue. I, I think it's just very hard for me to accept the argument that Israel is, is doing something precise. This is a precise bombing campaign and ground offensive when 1.7 million of the population has to, is, you know, expelled or forced away from their homes. Um, so, and, and I should also just last thing I'll say is if you actually look at what Israeli officials have said, um, they have often talked about Palestinians writ large as being fair game. And even someone that ostensibly left of center Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, um, you know, you might remember the very controversial remarks he made in the first couple of weeks. He said the, he said the entire nation is responsible. He questioned whether there were truly innocent um, Palestinians in Gaza because they know that Hamas is there and they've allowed Hamas to be in power. And we've heard those kinds of arguments a lot from Israeli officials that Palestinians themselves are part of this broader culture of violence and that there is something fundamentally wrong with the Palestinian people, particularly in Gaza, and that they are all somehow implicated in Hamas's crimes. That's a terrifying argument. So when we hear that time and time again from Israeli officials at, at different levels, then we know that they're maybe not caring so much about the Palestinian death toll. And to be fair, why like also, I think I think we should also remember Israelis are going to prioritize their own citizens over Palestinians. I think we as Americans should be more critical because we can be more objective. We're outside observers to this. And we can say, look, we get it. Israel doesn't care all that much about the Palestinian toll because that's not their priority. But we as Americans can step back and say, actually, are we comfortable with this? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but 
I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Again, a, a lot there. Um, and one of the, the, I think the usefulness of these type of conversation is not to convince the other person of this, but to get clarity of the different, where the difference is. And there is some, I mean, what we have here is what I think you said is that you do believe Israel has the right to defend itself. You do believe that they have the right to go after Hamas. The difference between our position is how you think Israel has conducted itself uh, in 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 the war. I think uh, is is where the clear difference is. You know, I would just respond um, before going to um, your what one of your Washington Post pieces is uh, that I do think that there has been a distinction and a a a, a care taken. And I think the one example is Al Shifa Hospital. The fact that, you know, it wasn't leveled. I mean, if they, if they just wanted to take out the hospital, it could have easily have been leveled. But that was a pretty precise operation. And unless I missed something, there there wasn't masses of civilians that were killed at Al Shifa Hospital. They were able to take over the hospital without uh, catastrophe of de- of destroying the hospital itself, despite the fact that. And again, this is I think uh, the other point that I would go back to because Hamas embedded itself within the, within the hospital, underneath the hospital, in the surrounding areas of Gaza, it does seem to me that is a, a key point where it is very hard to strike Hamas uh, in the way that you mentioned that the United States struck ISIS and Al-Qaeda uh, when you have a, this intricate web of, of, of tunnels where Hamas has embedded itself within civilian communities. So I do think that's also another distinction. But you know, I'd like, I'd like to get to... Uh, your column that you wrote in the Washington Post. You wrote this before there was a ceasefire, but the title was A Ceasefire in Gaza Isn't a Fantasy. Here's how it could work. But I I think when I read the column, it was more of talking about a permanent ceasefire rather than what we see now as a temporary ceasefire. And you had, uh, you you called this uh, a plan for a plausible ceasefire. Uh, A, hostages released. I think we're seeing some of that now. Uh, Israel stops bombardment. In the temporary ceasefire, we're seeing that now. And then you have CDENF, which is Hamas gives governing authority to the Palestinian Authority. You allow low and mid-level members and the political wing of Hamas into the governing structure. You allow the, the armed factions need to be blended into the Palestinian Authority and elections held. And finally, Hamas and other militants have to agree to settle disagreements at the ballot box. When I read those four things, I kind of, and, and by the way, I, I should say that you Right, repeatedly in the piece. This isn't a fantasy. I know this sounds like a fantasy. It's not a fantasy. Sometimes I think you're doing that because it is a fantasy. What I read this to be is that you're hoping that Hamas doesn't doesn't be Hamas anymore. You say Hamas, give up being Hamas. Uh, is that what you're asking? And I guess I, mean, I guess my ask the, the the secondary question now because it's part of it. Do you take the Hamas charter seriously? Because if I guess if if I take the Hamas charter seriously. I don't see how those things happen. So 
that piece that piece actually gets to um, a bigger set of questions beyond precision. So we talked about one aspect of my disagreements with what Israel has been doing, but I think there's a more foundational one, which is the day after and how and whether or not Israel should be trying to find a way to not just pause fighting for a few days, but to actually find a more durable cessation of hostilities. Because the only way to truly prevent many more Palestinians from dying is to not continue this war indefinitely, particularly if it moves towards the south. Um, and now it appears, you know, you hear claims that, and I think they, they're probably right to a large degree, that there are many Hamas members were able to flee to the south. But the problem is Palestinian civilians were told to go to the south because that's where they would be safe. So I'm just really fearful of what it might look like if we if there's a resumption of fighting and it moves towards this entire this different part of Gaza where there are hundreds of thousands of civilians. So I think we should be asking how are there plausible ways in which we can prevent a humanitarian disaster from getting even worse? And that's why I do think we should at least think seriously about things that might sound fantastical. And maybe you're right that in that column, I'm almost overcompensating because I know people are going to be like, okay, Shadi, this is far-fetched. And I'm trying to persuade myself that it's not far-fetched. But what I would say about Hamas specifically is I think Hamas has an interest in not being decimated. That is a major point of leverage. So, and and that also allows Israel to claim and and the U.S. to claim the moral high ground. If they say, "Look, if Hamas demobilizes, if it agrees to subject itself to Palestinian authority rule in Gaza, then there may actually be a future for a demobilized Hamas that is willing to play by the rules." and we'll be able to participate in elections. Now, if Hamas says, no, we'll never accept that because that's not who we are, well, you know, then obviously um, that's going to be a problem. And then... What, what, if, what if they say yes in order to regroup? I, I mean, I guess I guess the my, the, my fundamental question is, uh, you, I'm sure you've read Hamas's charter. I've read Hamas's charter. Uh, whether you, we take that charter seriously, whether that is something they believe in, whether they believe whether it's the right interpretation or not. And I, and I much prefer people that don't have their interpretation. And I've heard people say that the Hadith they quote is, are not valid Hadith, but they do quote uh, thing, what they believe, at least in the charter is true, of killing all Jews, you know, behind, uh, finding them behind a tree. The question is, do you believe they believe that charter? And if, if we believe they believe the charter, how can we imagine doing what you're saying. Yeah, well, I, I should just note that there's a revised charter from 2017 that is quite different than 1988 charter. Now, should we believe a terrorist organization when they revise a charter and say things that are more acceptable to international opinion? Uh, probably not. We should be very, we should take it with a grain of salt. But I do think it's a little bit misleading to say we're only going to take what Hamas said in 1988, but disregard everything that came after. My, my own perspective is that deep down, the vast majority of Hamas would much prefer Israel to be wiped from the map. That in their ideal world, like if they can imagine what it would be like 100 years from now, 
um, you know, it would it would probably be it would probably be pretty maximalist. I but I also believe that political actors can be constrained, and one way you do that is by distinguishing between different internal factions. So we do now know through pretty detailed reporting from some of my own colleagues at the Post, but also from a quite long reported article in the New York Times as well from a couple of weeks ago, that the political leadership in Doha of Hamas does not appear to have been aware of the October 7th um, attack and were not involved in the planning and that it was the military leadership, a very small circle of commanders inside of Gaza that kept this very close hold and went in their own direction and pursued this. If that is true, as the reporting suggests it is, you know, I think that Israel has a right to target the people who were, who were implicated and responsible for the October 7th massacre. But what about the Hamas members that weren't? They're still terrorists, they're still bad, but that, but I think it does raise some, I think, really important questions about whether you can just go around killing everyone who's part of an organization. And there's also the the kind of um, just realistic aspect of it. Hamas is a, is a mass movement. You have tens of thousands of members. Is anyone really advocating for killing every single one of them? So even the most extreme Israeli official official is not calling for that. So I think all like most reasonable people accept the the constraints of reality that if you're dealing with a movement that has a lot of people you target the senior leadership you either kill or arrest the military commanders who are responsible for these crimes against humanity and against the Jew, and against um innocent Jews in Israel but you can't kill every single member including low and mid level cadres. So I'm just trying to be pragmatic. What do we do about those tens of thousands of low and mid-level cadres? I think that you don't want something like what happened in Iraq um, at, um, during the Iraq war, where you have debathification. So you have all these people who are part of Saddam's military, but then they had no way to be reincorporated into state structures. And then they- But Shadi, can, can I ask you if there's a difference there? And the difference is Again, it comes down to whether Hamas believes the original charter or not, right? The 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 Ba'ath Party didn't have a religious underpinning. Uh, you know, they 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 didn't believe they had a religious mandate, as far as I know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if Hamas believes it's a religiously mandated duty to follow the charter and attack Israel and kill Jews, that does seem yeah. I mean, I don't different. see, but I don't see any evidence that ordinary Hamas members all subscribe to a particular reading of, I mean, and if you look at their subsequent statements and the later charter, they do not call for those things. Again, it's not for me to say, well, okay, we believe them or we don't believe them, but I think there's enough evidence that not everyone in Hamas, it's not, they're not all automatons who think, who wake up in the morning and say, our only goal in life is to kill Jews. Um, I just don't think we can make that argument about tens of thousands of people. And I, I don't think you can even make that argument about the, the kind of rank and file fighters of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and say, all of them believe X. I just don't think that's the way militant groups that have a lot of members actually work in practice. But 
what we do know is that but, but just but before we i mean we have made these statements i mean the banality of evil was a, a guy who claimed he was just a technocrat who was uh, you know making making the operations of things but we said no he he has is as evil as you know the 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 guy at a death camp uh Eichmann we're talking about so i mean we have made these 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 judgments before that tens of thousands of people that are associated with a particular party can't can't have any power i mean maybe they don't all have to be killed okay well denazification wasn't as thorough as people assume i mean there were many mid you know mid level um members of the Nazi party or even higher level members of the Nazi party who were actually reincorporated into the German state subsequently. Um, not everyone, actually a very small number of the over, but I don't, I don't like Nazi comparisons because I think that's sort of, um, it's an argumentative move that I think is meant to distort our understanding of a very different context, because we know that this is, these are this is the ultimate evil in 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 you know in much of human history um and then we say well this is like that and then we forget that there is a particular i mean how can we really compare palestine or or palestinians to germans at that i mean i think if people want to go in that direction we get into some very dark territory because sometimes the argument is that well ordinary germans who weren't members of the nazi party were still implicated in the crimes because they didn't speak out. And then we can start making justifications for something like the firebombing of Dresden, um, which, you know, where tens of thousands of German civilians were killed in the in the final period of World War II. And I just don't think we should be going in that direction because it's a very dark place. But I would also maybe pose the question, is the suggestion here that every single Hamas member should be killed. How are you going to do that? The only way you can do that is by actually doing something close to genocide. You would have to like really level the entirety of Gaza and just do mass killings. And I just don't think anyone is really taking that seriously as an option. So it's not just me who, who is bringing, who's trying to bring forward some of these distinctions. I don't think anyone who is realistic about the situation is calling for that. So then what is the alternative? then the only alternative I'm aware of is to find ways to actually give some Hamas members, if they're willing to agree to not pursue terrorism and to participate in the political process to pursue their aims, then this is why there would have to be an electoral process. And that's why I say in that column, elections would have to be held under a reasonable time frame, and if you give them a path, you see if they accept but do, it. Do you? But I guess I, I think this is just another. This is another point of clarity. I think in, in the distinction here. I mean, I can't imagine Israel allowing Hamas to be elected, even if they said they gave gave, gave up. Uh, a because why? I mean, I don't think Israel can afford to believe them. Well, I'm not saying they would be elected. I'm just saying that you give Hamas members an ability to participate in elections. And it wouldn't even be as Hamas. Perhaps they would have to be part of a completely separate organization and they would have to distance themselves from the kind of parent Hamas organization. There's, I mean, these are all details that would have to be worked out among Palestinians themselves. But Hamas has been part of the broader Palestinian scene for a long time. And there were previous reconciliation reconciliation agreements between Hamas and Fatah. So I'm, this is not something that is coming out of nowhere. 
This has been an ongoing discussion between Palestinian factions for many years now. And I think at some basic level, you don't want people to play spoiler. If you have a process the day after, you don't want to have a whole chunk of Palestinian armed fighters who are trying to explode everything and oppose a new Palestinian authority. Um, and that's where the debathification example, I think, becomes relevant. Again, maybe not a perfect analogy, but I just don't really know what the alternative is. And maybe I would just pose that to you. I mean, like, what do you think the alternative should be? Like, what are you actually proposing here? Because if you agree with me with the premise that you can't just kill everyone that you don't like, and when people say, well, we don't negotiate with terrorists, I mean, I get that emotionally, but actually, historically, Terrorists are sometimes the people you need to negotiate with. And let's be clear, Israel is negotiating with terrorists right now as part of these hostage deals. So even Israel accepts this. They do it through intermediaries. They do it indirectly, but they're still effectively negotiating with terrorists. The PLO, when Yasser Arafat was around, the Palestine Liberation Organization, that was a terrorist organization that was killing Israelis and Jews. But ultimately, the US supported a process starting with the Madrid process in the early 90s going into the Oslo process after the PLO made certain commitments and said that they will no longer resort to terrorism. That was a shift that happened over many years. So sometimes terrorists do are able to be constrained within a political process. You try. Sometimes it doesn't work. And I'm not here to say, I can't guarantee that this would work. I just think the distinction is, again, the PLO was Arab nationalist, whereas Hamas believes, at least you know, from their original charter, there's a religious mandate to do what they do. So you don't think, so is the argument here that re religious groups, as opposed to secular ones, can actually change their beliefs over time? I mean, the argument is, if they actually believe that they have a mission to do this, uh, and ordained by God, I think it's much more much harder uh, to believe that you can incorporate them unless they are convinced that they have the wrong interpretation, which is possible and has happened. But uh, I mean, I think it's it's a much more difficult. I mean, that's what made Al Qaeda, I think, such a threat. Uh, um, and what what makes to me Iran a threat uh, uh, is that they they believe it's they they have a religious mandate to do what they're doing. When you believe you have a religious mandate. Um, I do think it's a, a, a more dangerous and difficult threat. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chumbacasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. But I want to I go to uh, uh, kind of continue on this uh, from uh, a quote from your Washington Post column. Reducing Hamas terrorism to a problem of evil is a mistake was the title of the column. And the piece you cite a July poll from this year showing 60 to 75 percent of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank having a positive view of Islamic Jihad and Lion's Den, which you note are uh, as radical or more radical than Hamas. And you go on to write uh, that you have to understand people as complicated uh, and quote, you say, but it would be also a mistake to dismiss Hamas's terrorism as mere evil. As the philosopher John Gray notes, a campaign of mass murder is never simply an expression of psychopathic aggression. To describe the things we can't comprehend as evil is a, is a cop-out. It allows us to believe something is wrong with them, but not with us. And paradoxically, it exposes an unwillingness to take terror seriously, reducing them to crazy or irrational adversaries. They usually aren't. I guess my question would be, um, I actually think the opposite, that, that you describe them as rational uh, and evil. I would say, can you not be both rational and evil? In Hamas's case, they have a charter. Isn't it to understand them is to understand they're rationally accepting their charter and following what they believe their charter tells them and what they're expressing in their charter uh, to do, uh, and that you can see that as both rational and evil. And, and I guess what I would say is that's why it's so important. Uh, uh, and Israel sees it as, uh, you know, dire uh, to have to defeat them and destroy them and, you know, maybe kill as many as you can, even if you can't destroy and dismantle all of them. Yeah. So the first thing on on the polling that you mentioned, um, which is quite interesting and alarming, obviously, to see such large numbers supporting um, terrorists or, or militant groups. I think it's, and part of part of the argument I make in that column is that if we want to understand why so many non-Hamas Palestinians, ordinary Palestinian civilians, say that they support armed struggle, violence, attacks against Israeli civilians, we have to actually... So we have two options. One is that there's something pre-programmed about Palestinians that makes them have this kind of bloodlust. That's one direction you can go in. And as I sort of alluded to earlier, I think that's a very dangerous direction to go in because it means that basically all Palestinians or most Palestinians are fair game for targeting and so forth. The other, the other way of looking at it, and this is what I argue for in the piece, is that there is a context to this conflict before October 7th. And if we start the clock just on October 7th, we actually end up being very much misled because this has been going on for decades and it's complicated. And let's look at some of that history. And Palestinian views have not been static. If we look at the 1990s at the height of the Oslo peace process, the vast majority of Palestinians supported a two-state solution and only 20% supported violence. So clearly something changed over time from the 1990s until the present day. So let, me give clearly- the, let me give the quote from the piece that, that you write here. You okay. say, you go on in the column and you say, millions of Palestinians can be incentivized away from violence. Uh, they once believed in a two-state solution and for good reason. They could see progress, however halting, in their own lives. In recent years, however, they have seen only a series of dead ends. Let you just comment on that. I think you were commenting on there. But also, 
to pose a question to you. You, you keep mentioning, uh, you know, you're, this, you can't see the Palestinians of having a bloodlust. I, I think the, the difference is if you say they genetically have a bloodlust, that would be racist. I would argue that the issue has to do with uh, the education and indoctrination that you see through the media. You, I, I'm sure you've seen clips of like teddy bears or kind of uh, kids type cartoons where, where they're from an early age you're seeing on TV uh, these, you know, uh, you know, my number one goal is to become a martyr to kill the Jews, uh, the Israelis. Um, that does seem to be what I would pose as a solution is to end the indoctrination that exists, uh, particularly probably in Gaza, but has existed in the West Bank and Gaza for a long time. Tell me if I'm wrong there. Well, we have to ask ourselves, why are people receptive to that indoctrination? And that's where the broader political context becomes relevant. That kind of indoctrination wasn't commonplace in the 1990s when there was a viable peace process, because when people have hope, they're less likely to consider violence because they have a nonviolent path. But the fact of the matter is that ever since Oslo and its decline, Palestinians have been stuck. They haven't had a peaceful path. They've actually, I mean, really, it's been somewhat the opposite, that the Netanyahu government has very consciously worked to thwart a Palestinian state. And this has been the 2019 Likud uh, meeting that's been reported on a lot um, since October 7th, where Netanyahu basically tells his fellow party members that let's actually send support to Hamas. Let's make sure the money gets from Qatar to Hamas because the more Hamas is strengthened, the more we can argue that a Palestinian state is not viable. You kind of raise Hamas so you can paint Palestinians as hopeless. There's no partner for peace. That is a question. I haven't, I haven't seen that, but how would Netanyahu get Hamas out of power without a war? I mean, in two, I mean he, he, couldn't, he wasn't in a position to remove Hamas at that time. I mean, yeah, because you know, this is where he, he had it took this great, this horrible attack for him to be maybe in a position to remove Hamas. There would be no international support for him doing that. Yeah, yeah. So, well, basically, I mean, the, the idea here is that you prevent any kind of reconciliation between Gaza and the West Bank. Israel did have a, what, what's sometimes called a policy of separation, where you try to isolate Gaza and the West Bank and prevent, their, prevent them from actually having any kind of united body. Um, and that's been in part, part of the idea behind the blockade of Gaza, which has been going on since 2017. The land, air, and sea blockade is to keep Gaza isolated from the West Bank. So I, I think that Netanyahu and his allies have been very open about keeping Palestinians divided, making sure they can't actually form a kind of consensus front or a consensus government. There have been a number of reconciliation efforts um, 20, um, in 2014, most recently in 2019 in the Cairo Agreement, where you actually had progress where different Palestinian factions were getting close to a consensus agreement where you would actually have Gaza and the West Bank united under, under one authority. Um, Israel has undermined those efforts. That's a bit of a longer story, but that's kind of part of my answer to that. But on the on the on the broader point, though, I think there's still this fundamental reality that Palestinians have shifted. 
why were they supporting peace and why were they opposing violence in the 90s when and then they start supporting violence more in the 2010s um and i think we know this if we think about our own experience post 9/11 and how we thought about terrorism and actually to to their credit the bush administration and the so-called neocons were actually the biggest proponents of the root causes argument of terrorism the whole premise behind bush's freedom agenda was to say that if you don't give arabs a way to express their legitimate grievances through the democratic process through peaceful participation they're more likely to resort to violence and terrorism so the only way to fight terrorism in the medium to long term is to actually help democratize the middle east and promote elections and promote an opening of political space and i mean there's also that famous kennedy quote those who make um peaceful evolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable something to that effect so this is something that i think is very much well known in the study of terrorism and violent extremism and so it's not enough to say that palestinians are just being indoctrinated we have to ask why they are receptive to that indoctrination and i i guess i would pose the question maybe also to to you and others do you think that palestinians are going to be the greatest proponent proponents of peaceful participation and all the things you want them to be without them having a viable path forward do you, it's it just seems obvious to me that if people don't have hope they get desperate that doesn't justify anything but it contextualizes why you have these poll numbers but i i would just point out i mean my response simply would be the intifada began after arafat rejected what was the greatest peace offer from Ehud Omar, I'm sorry, from uh, Ehud Barak. Um, Hamas won the Palestinian election uh, to the Legislative Council after Sharon did the disengagement from Gaza. I'm not sure that all the violence has only occurred after um, there was no hope. I mean, oftentimes it seems like they were after responses of Israel offering, uh, and we'll probably have disagreements there perhaps a little bit, but I do want to get to one more quote from. Actually, the title I originally quoted in the beginning of the piece, the column was, in, is, in, in the Israeli-Palestinian debate, you might be wrong, so be humble. You write about competing narratives. And uh, I remember my first class as a freshman at Cornell, the, I took uh, an Israeli-Palestinian course. The, nar- the dual narratives were um, kind of the theme of the course. I, I guess my question is, even if you accept in, in, in total the Palestinian narrative, why 75 years later? Are there 68 refugee camps in the West Bank and Gaza, in Lebanon, in um, Jordan, uh, and in Syria? Uh, whereas, you know, refugees have been, uh, the, the refugees from the Arab world, in roughly equal or greater numbers that came to Israel, don't live in refugee camps in Europe, don't live in refugee camps. I don't think there are, other than Kashmir, uh, refugees from the Indian, uh, Indi, Indian Pakistan separation. Uh, in 1949, refugee camps. Why do there remain to be refugee camps? Why are they Why are they maintained and not incorporated into into uh, kind of c- civilian life in Syria, in Lebanon, and, and in Jordan? Yeah, well, I think this gets to a big narrative divide. That you know, when I when you look at the Palestinian narrative, it is just an incredibly and this colors the emotion. So when people say, "Well," 
you know, why are, you know, Arabs or, you know, Muslims, you know, why do they get emotion, you know, emotional and so forth about the Palestinian plight and, and the broader conflict? It's because they're more acquainted with a particular narrative that is decades long. As you said, 75 years, starting in 1948 with what Palestinians called the Nakba, which means in Arabic, the catastrophe. And during that period, uh, around 700,000 Palestinians um, were, uh, were forced to flee or expelled from their homes and land in what is now present-day Israel. So many of them thought that they would be able to return. And this is where the whole debate around the right of return becomes relevant. And the, the bottom line is Palestinian identity is real, it's strong, it's become stronger over time, because when a group is oppressed and denied basic rights for such a long time, then it makes them different from Syrians or Egyptians. Not all Arabs are the same. So Palestine, many Palestinians in these refugee camps, they don't want to become part of Syrian society because they're not Syrian. They don't have any emotional resonance with the Syrian state. They want to return to their ancestral land, and they haven't been given that opportunity. Um, they don't have a path to a path to become to to go back. Not, I'm not even talking about just Israel proper. Obviously, that's quite challenging, and Israel, understandably, is not going to be enthusiastic about allowing. Um, more than a kind of symbolic amount of Palestinian refugees to be back to go back to Israel, but it's even hard for them to get back to the West Bank or Gaza. And of course, now I mean, no one is going to be like, "Oh, let's try to find a way to get to get back to Gaza." So that's part of the reason why you've had these kind of permanent refugee camps. But, but Shadi, I guess my question is: even if you accept that as you know, uh, prior to as, as one of the great injustices of our time, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure people debate whether that, you know, th there's certain interpretations of what happened in 1948, how many, it was for people being forced out versus leaving on their own, hoping to come back. But forget that, except the, 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 the narrative. Isn't it hopeless for children? I mean, if, if your one focus is to return to land as opposed to, you know, in, in, incorporate into the society you are and adopt, a, try to create a future there, and it, it does seem you're just generation after generation you're focused on, on on land as opposed to creating a future for yourself. Yeah, um, look, that's a that's a legitimate objection. I don't think it's really for me. Like, as someone who's not Palestinian myself, I can't completely relate to what Palestinians the kind of trauma and historical wounds that color their own identity, and that identity has been forged, as I mentioned, for quite some time. So I can't. Like maybe I would think, oh, I would just kind of accept my lot in Syria or Lebanon and just try to make the best of things. But it's also worth noting that these are not great societies. So you might be right that if they were in America, and it's worth noting, Palestinians and diaspora in the West have actually been quite successful. Very. They have forged a future for their kids in those countries. But the leader of El Salvador is Palestinian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Latin America has a lot of interesting um, examples of this, exactly. But when we're talking about dictatorships like Syria, which is like a terrible place to live, even for Syrians, <laughs> for, for obvious reasons, and when people say, well, why don't we open the Rafah border and allow Gazans to have um, refuge in the Sinai under Egypt? 
But if I was a Palestinian, I wouldn't want to be in the Sinai desert under Egyptian rule. I mean, Egypt is another brutal authoritarian regime. And Egypt has not been great to the Palestinians historically. It's worth noting that Egypt has been part of the blockade of Gaza. And in that sense, Egypt and Israel have been, in effect, cooperating with each other to isolate Gaza. So I think when you start to look at the details of some of these Arab, other Arab countries, it's understandable to me that Palestinians would not be thrilled about having a future there. Um, and I think that's just total, I think I see that as understandable, but I think it's hard for any of us who aren't Palestinians ourselves to be able to kind of fully embody the kind of the tragedy and difficulty of that experience. And I think there is also a concern that if they give up their claims of going back to their land, then that makes it easier for Israel to say, well, look, they can just stay in the Arab countries. They, they can say, well, oh, there's a lot of Palestinians already in Jordan. And it's worth noting that over half of Jordanian citizens are of Palestinian origin. So in Jordan, they have actually made that their home. But the danger is if we keep on making other homes for Palestinians outside of Palestine, then that kind of undermines some of the broader claims for a two-state solution to have an independent Palestinian state where all Palestinians across the globe will have a chance to return. And I think that should be the priority. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the only way to actually resolve this broader conflict is to find a peaceful modus vivendi between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. Like Ultimately, that, I think, and it, it sounds... In many ways, a two-state solution might seem unrealistic, but for all of our disagreements on some of, on different aspects of, of the history and the politics, I would like to think that the day after the fighting, God willing, at some future point in Gaza, that we can all kind of redouble our efforts and say, if we want to move away from the endless violence of the last few decades, the only way to do that is by pushing for a two-state solution. This is where I also should note, I get criticized from folks on the pro-Palestinian side where they say, Shadi, why don't you support a one-state solution? Wait, are you some kind of like closet Zionist? Because I do believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. I think for people who say that there should not, be, there should just be one state for both peoples, then it would not be a Jewish state anymore. And if I was an Israeli Jew, I would never accept that. And I think that you can't try to correct the injustice of 1948 by committing another injustice. And I think it would be an injustice to end a Jewish state. Um, that would like defeat the entire purpose of what, of what Israel was meant to be. So I think that ultimately, I'm still someone who maybe unrealistically thinks that one state solution, all these other things, annexation, indefinite occupation, all of these are disastrous ideas. There is still only one viable solution in my view. Let me just close on, on a, a subject that's tied, but a little bit tangential. Uh, and because I know it's something you've written about even before this conflict, which is free speech. Uh, I had a, a two podcasts today, uh, one will air before yours, uh, which it, the the one earlier is with Governor uh, Chris Christie, uh, and I asked him about um, some of the the proposals that you've seen in the aftermath of October seventh of of 
A, for canceling visas of students who signed uh, what some consider pro-Hamas petitions uh, or uh, gone to rallies that some uh, consider pro-Hamas rallies, uh, or also having ideological tests for for uh, immigrants coming to the country. He said on the on the rallies that he does think that people that have supported what he called anti-Semitic uh, uh, positions who are on visas uh, have no right to be in the country, uh, and uh, their visas could be canceled. I, I'm I, I, I'm just interested in your perspective on that type of of policy and whether whether you think it's uh, yeah just your your perspective on that. Well, maybe that would be reasonable or acceptable if all of us agreed on what constitutes anti-Semitism. What I've seen in recent weeks is a very troubling development where now anti-Semitism is used to describe anything that is pro-Palestinian and people aren't making distinctions. So when you see people uh, protest at these pro-Palestine protests, some of them have reprehensible anti-Semitic views, but oftentimes the way that it's described by Republican politicians in particular is that these are pro-Hamas protests or that anyone who calls for a ceasefire is pro-Hamas and therefore anti-Semitic. We're basically criminalizing and delegitimizing legitimate support for the Palestinian plight. Like, do we really want to get into a situation where pro-Palestine equals pro-Hamas? Um, that's pretty scary to me. And I feel like that that is what I've been hearing a lot, including from folks who, you know, I otherwise respect or agree with on other issues. And I feel like, wait, they're calling all these protests pro-Hamas? And as someone who has been attacked as pro-Hamas myself, I see how people use this as a slur for people who they disagree with. And I'm against that 100%. But, but, but actually, I thought I think there's an interesting point in there, though, that if if they were actually pro-Hamas uh, and you were an immigrant on a visa, you wouldn't oppose them being their visa being canceled. You, you would be you would be supportive of that if they were actually pro-Hamas. Okay, but what 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 do we mean by pro-Hamas? Because part of my concern is we use that term in a very vague. If they way. said I'm pro. If they said I'm pro Hamas, I mean, th- th- there's been plenty of examples of people saying that. That's not unusual. The, the New York, the New York, uh, she's not. She was an immigrant, so she wouldn't be eligible for this debate. But the the New York law student who sent that email was she, she was pro Hamas. I mean, there's plenty of people, and I would say even at those rallies, I think we might disagree. I think if you ask a lot of the people there, they 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 would at least not criticize Hamas. Some I think would say openly, I am pro Hamas. And we saw in Oakland, uh, there was that video of the town council. Again, I don't think these people would be eligible because they are American citizens uh, for their visa being canceled, uh, who said openly they're pro-Hamas. But if someone says, hey, I'm pro-Hamas, and they are an immigrant on a visa, do you think they, that they, they, their visa should be canceled? That would, that would be, you know, that would probably be, I wouldn't be as concerned about that. I, I, I just worry about even if it's legitimate in those cases of a dangerous precedent being set, because once you start, you're still going to have a debate about where does one draw the line? Because most people won't say I'm pro Hamas. They'll say things that could be interpreted as that. Um, And I, I just, I don't love the idea of setting a precedent for one category of support for terrible things, because if we're not applying that, so let's say for example, support for, violent extremists or terrorists in a different conflict. Are we also saying that we're going to revoke their visas or is this something that we reserve only for the, for 
like the Palest the Israeli Palestinian conflict and because I don't trust Republicans on this and I think that I've seen a lot of just generalized anti-Palestinian sentiment and I'll I'll just note what Tom Cotton said uh, just yes uh, just um, just the other day where he's calling on a CIA I believe it's a CIA officer who has a social media profile and she apparently um, put up a pro a Palestinian flag on her social media and Tom Cotton is calling for her to be suspended from her job because and he's saying that this is pro this is effectively pro Hamas even though it's just a Palestinian flag and his reasoning is that there are two sides to this and if you express support for one over the other so that that just I've seen so much of that that maybe I'm just like a little like I'm overly suspicious of any kind of conversation of this nature. I'm also something close to no one's a free speech absolutist, but I lean more that we should always err on the side of allowing bad speech or terrible speech and instead of um criminalizing it or using legal action, we actually make our arguments publicly and we say these people have reprehensible views. Here's why. And we make strong moral arguments and we try to keep the moral high ground. That would be my preference. Well, with that, Shadi, thank you for this very civil discussion on what is obviously a very uh, difficult situation in the Middle East. And thank you for joining the Dispatch Podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jamie.